Now is it working? Yeah, that's cool. We start uh, this evening a series in the book of Obadiah. Uh, the next five times they get to speak in the evening, we'll be speaking on Obadiah. Um, and tonight, we, the plan is not to go through all of the verses. That's what we're going to do for the next four weeks, to go through verse by verse and see what God is saying. So all I want to do tonight is to give an, an overview of the book of Obadiah to help us to kind of place it in history and get some of the major themes in our minds and to learn a few things from it. Um, so fairly much this evening what I'd like to do is just do four background things talk about four of the various parts which are the background of the book of Obadiah so that you can place it in history you can place it in geography and you can begin to put into your mind some sort of understanding of what Obadiah is saying here so the first thing that we have to understand about the background of this book is that we need to somehow understand the relationship of Edom and Israel. I, I don't know as you were reading through there, all the things that it was saying were going to happen to Edom, this nation of Edom. Uh, so, for example, verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Um, verse 6, Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures will be pillaged. Um, Verse 8, I will destroy the wise men of Eden. Verse 10, because of your violence, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. Uh, we'll go through to verse 18, Esau will be stubble. He'll be set on fire and, and, and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. So if, if you think about that, God is proclaiming a, a complete judgment upon a particular nation. And in order to understand why that happens, it's important for us to understand who Edom is. Edom begins as a nation with the birth of Esau to Jacob. Esau had a brother. His name was? Oh, come on, guys. Old Testament history? Jacob from Isaac. Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. And that is in Genesis chapter 25. If you go back with me to Genesis chapter 25 and turn to verse 21. We pick up the story when Edom started. It says this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Uh, she was particularly blessed because she had twins. Right? And the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The idea is that she wasn't declaring, why is this happening to me? I'm having twins. But why is it so in turmoil in there? What's going on? Right? What's, what's, it just seems out of the ordinary from when I've talked to other ladies around me. I think that's what she meant. So the Lord said to her, this is verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Hairy, which is what Esau means. Esau means hairy. 
I mean, how would you like being named what you look like when you come out? Um, one of my kids looked a bit like a lizard when he, <laughs> they were born. And how would you, you know, how would you go calling your kid a lizard? I mean, there's some really weird names out there at the moment. You just wonder. But anyways, he was, his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Harry, Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. These two boys are born, and God says to Rebekah, the reason there's such turmoil within you is there's two nations going to come from these kids, and one nation is going to serve the other nation. The Apostle Paul talks about this over in Romans chapter 9. He says something about uh, just this choice that God has for, the, for these kids. Um, over in verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. In other words, God determines right from the moment of, of these kids' conception, I suppose, even beforehand, that there would be two nations and one would serve the other one. This is his plan so that his glory can be magnified. Esau doesn't take, I think, to this too well. And you can see that there's already as he grows up, there's this, this conflict with his brother, but also it seems that he turns away from God. Jacob turns away from God to some extent, but he still has this communication with God. And eventually in his struggles, he comes back to the Lord. But Esau seems to walk away from God. He doesn't respond to God's covenant plans and purposes. Later on in chapter 5, he sells his birthright. Verse um, 29 once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jake, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. So not only was he called Harry, because he was hairy, but he was called Edom, which means red, because he liked red stew. Imagine if all your nicknames came about because of that sort of thing. So the whole nation is called Red. Sounds pretty weird. But that's because he sold his birthright for this stew. It was important to him. He was prepared to give up his inheritance that he might gather and, and have his needs met in the moment. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? So Jacob says, swear to me. And he swore an oath to Jacob, selling his birthright to him. A couple of chapters later, we learn that he, he, sold, he married two Canaanite women, contrary to the idea of what God was saying, that through these people and those people are godless. And yet he married two Canaanite women. And over in chapter 28, he marries one of Ishmael's kids. Over in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says that because of Esau's attitude in this thing, and particularly it talks about his attitude in selling his birthright, he calls Esau godless. In other words, it seems that Esau, as he grew up, his reaction 
to either what was determined in his life or just the family relate or whatever it was. He turned his back on God and he walked away from God's covenant promises. He walked away from living according to God's rule. He was godless. And so you get this beginning of this split with these two boys who didn't get on. Esau goes and settles in Seir. Now, I drew a map with my finger this morning. I did this this morning, but apparently we now have a map. There we go. All right. Anyone see this one? Just for your interest, I hope this doesn't break. You have the Sea of Galilee in here, right? The Jordan River running down this way. You all know this is the Mediterranean, right? This is the Dead Sea, sorry. Dead Sea here, right? This is the Gulf of Aqaba. This is the Suez Gulf. There's a little thing across here now called the Suez Canal. Everyone's happy with that? Down in between these two is a wadi, which is a dry riverbed. All right, so during the rainy season, it's got water in it, but for most of the time, it's dry. That was the border of Edom. It's the current border of Jordan. All right? So Edom settled in this area here, but generally in a strip in a valley that was in that area there. All right? And Esau came and lived on a place called Mount Seir, which is about there. Now, that's the current location of the city of Petra. You've all seen possibly pictures of Petra. Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, Canyon, big building, that's Petra. Right? Big, rocky place. Right? The, arc of, uh, sorry, the chalice is not there. <laughs> Just telling you, it sank in the ground. But... Petra is there. That's where he moved to. And they, he formed a big nation and they became a nation fairly quickly and a fairly strong nation for a number of reasons. One is there is a route, a trade route, from Egypt all the way up into Europe which goes up through this valley here. It's called the King's Highway. And so as a nation, they had control of that highway which meant they could exact a toll on the people around them. If you want to come through, give us some money. And so they became commercially fairly wealthy. So as a nation, that was one source of their strength and their growth. Another part of their growth was they became strong militarily because they, were, because they lived in this rocky outcrop and they, they actually built... If you, if you get a description of Mount Seir of Petra as it is, um, one person who's described it says that you go through this canyon. It's never more than five metres wide. All right? And you go through for about a kilometre at least. It's a kilometre and a half or something like that. And as you wind your way through it, you eventually come and there's this temple before you, which is the temple that you see in Indiana Jones. And alongside, as you go through the canyon, there's a culvert. That's how the water gets in. There's ancient pathways there where the people used to walk through. The people suggest that 12 people, 12 men, could protect Petra from an army. It was impregnable. So they could always withdraw back up this canyon. And even if, for some strange reason, someone was able to fight their way in, remember that along this canyon there's also 
up on the walls, there's homes tunneled in into the wall faces. Right? As you go right through to the very end, it opens up into a, a big valley, if you like. It's about the size of four or five Brisbane suburbs. I think I measured it out. It's six CBDs for Brisbane. So it's not that big. For those of you who are into square kilometres, it's about two and a half square kilometres in size. So that even if an army was to fight its way in, all the people who lived there would just move back up into the homes that were chiselled out of the walls of the canyon and just drop things on the invaders. So they figured, and you read this in verse 3 of Obadiah, it says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home in the heights. You say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? And so they were content in themselves as a nation. That's who they were. But this rivalry with Jacob and his descendants continued on. We, we read about this in Numbers chapter 20. This is the story just after the people of Israel have left Egypt. And if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn with me, turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. We're going to start reading at verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Oh, the picture's gone. Kadesh is right down at the bottom where the gulf is. All right, that's where Kadesh Barnea is. That's where they were. And he sent a messenger from there to the king of Edom saying, this is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. We just want to make our way straight through. We're not going to touch anything. We won't touch your water. We won't touch your livestock. We'll just bring everything that we need with us. You'll be left alone. We're just going to march on the highway. We're your brothers. Let us through. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we'll march out and attack you with the sword. Israel answered, we will go along the main road. And if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we'll pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Look, we don't need preferential treatment. Treat us like everybody else who makes their way through. We'll pay for what we use. We'll pay for the privilege. We've just come out of Egypt. We looted the guys. We got heaps. We're loaded. And again they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them and headed off into the desert. And this rivalry continued. King Saul fought against them in 1 Samuel. David fought against them in 2 Samuel. Solomon was involved in subduing them. Jehoshaphat fought against them in 2 Kings. 
Jehoram fought against them in 2 Kings. Ahaz fought against them in 2 Kings. And you have this constant rivalry, with often the result being that Israel subdued Edom. Edom was pushed back into its land. But in fact, David was able to subdue it and put garrisons within the town. And you have prophets all the way through condemning Edom for their response. And there's this rivalry back and forth. And that's the background to the book of Obadiah. Just an aside for you. In the 5th century, the Nabataeans kicked Edom out and they moved up closer up above near the Dead Sea. And they became what we call Idumeans. So people like Herod was an Idumean. Herod the Idumean was from the, the remnants of Edom. And in about 70 AD, the Idumeans joined with the Jews in a rebellion against Rome and they were crushed by Titus in AD 70. And there is no mention of Edomites from then on. In other words, they were wiped out completely. In fact, Petra disappeared for well over a thousand years. It was rumoured that there was this city up in the rocks, but nobody lived there. The only people who were there were a few of the Arabian nomads, and they would let nobody in. Anyone who went in, they, they killed them. Just for your interest, in the 1800s, some guy rocked up, because if you read in the scriptures, the next thing that happened is Aaron dies, and there's this understanding that his body is in Petra by the people in the area. So this guy rocked up and said, I want to sacrifice at the grave of Aaron. And they figured you couldn't turn him down if he was actually that religious and wanted to tie in with their religious duties. So they let him in to have a look. He was the first person to go in for almost a thousand years to have a look. And that's where Petra came back into the focus of the world. But the Edomites were destroyed. That's the background. But why in particular were they being killed at this time? Why was this punishment being proclaimed by Obadiah. And we only get a couple of things. In verse 10 of Obadiah, it says, all of this has come about because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. In other words, because of your violence against God's people, are you going to be punished? And it wasn't just violence towards them. If you go down to verse 13, 11 and onwards, he says things like this. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. When we go through this verse by verse, we'll have a look at that in a little bit more detail. But basically the idea is this. Edom is watching other people get ransacked. And it's standing there and saying, even though they're my brothers, it doesn't affect me. It's not my business. And God says, you can't just stand there and let bad things happen to other folk and stand there and say, it's got nothing to do with me. And then they were worse. It goes down in here. They gloated over the fact that this happened to somebody else. And they, re they, didn't, they rejoiced in the day of their destruction and their misfortune and their trouble. And then even further on, what they did is they would capture the people who were running away from the turmoil and they would hand them back to their oppressors. And they treated God's people exceptionally poorly. That's what this story is about. That's the first thing. The second thing that we find out 
in here about it is that, well, the first thing was we have to understand this situation. The second thing we have to understand is who's Obadiah. What do we know about this guy called Obadiah? And what we know is this. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. That's it. That's, that's all we know about this guy. There's nothing else to say. There is lots of people called Obadiah in, in the Scripture. There's about 11 or 12 of them. And, and people say he's not one of any of the other ones. You know, you get different theories all over the place. We know nothing more about him. Obadiah was a common name. Didn't mean hairy. It meant servant of the Lord, servant of Yahweh. And lots of people called their kids that. So that's all we know about this guy, except we know that he was in this relationship with God where he was able to prophesy and give the word of God. He's, it's one of a book of, of a number of books called the Minor Prophets. There's about 12 of them. Why were they called minor? Well, not because it's unimportant and not because what they say isn't important or theologically astute. They're called minor because they're short. They're brief. They're not long-winded. I would probably not be called a minor preacher <laughs> under those terms, which is maybe is why I talk a lot, because then he called a major preacher, which is the major prophets. Right? So this guy didn't speak a lot, but what he said was powerful. That's what we know about him. The third thing that we need to know in terms of background is when was this written? We've talked about this violence that was done, and, and really that's... If we look back through the history, when was the violence within the nation where the Edomites were involved in gloating over the, the destruction of Jerusalem or the ransacking of Jerusalem? And there are four times that we have through the scriptures when Jerusalem was ransacked that it could apply to. And most people say that there are really only two possibilities where it could be. The first of them is the final ransacking of Jerusalem when the temple is destroyed. Babylon comes down and deports all the people away to Babylon. That's one. That's sort of in the late part of, of um, Judah's history. The other one is really early on in Judah's history, which is in the time of Jehoram. This is when this king was really bad and he mistreated some people and the Philistines and some Arabians came up and whooped his tush and carried off him and his family elsewhere. Does it make a difference which one it is? And the answer is not really. But as we get through looking at some of the verses, it is helpful to have some sort of idea. The commentaries argue back and forth completely as to which is which. My thinking is, and the suggestion I would suggest you is, it's probably the earlier one rather than the later one, because Obadiah doesn't talk about the destruction of the temple. And the prophets usually talk about the temple being destroyed as being a heinous thing, and it's never mentioned in here. It doesn't talk about the deportation of the people. It, it doesn't talk um, of the Babylonians, and, and they were such a mighty race. Normally you would see them being mentioned in the prophecies, which means that it's probably a very early writing. In fact, if, if it is that time, he's one of the first prophets. He's one of the first prophets to come and say, thus saith the Lord, in the sort of way that we have in the prophetic writings. And it means he's of the time of Elijah and Elisha. That's about when this book is set. The fourth thing that we have as background, and we're going to stop here in terms of background, that we need to understand is, what are the themes of the book? What, what do we need to put into our heads so that as we look at the book in the later weeks, we can slot it into place? And there's two themes that we get here. The first main theme is because of Edom's treatment of Israel, they're being punished. 
because of, and it's, it's interesting how he does this interplay between Edom and Esau. He ties in the fact that this is a, a long-going thing. In the same way that Esau rejected God, in the same way that Esau walked away from God, Edom didn't tie in with its heritage. In fact, it forgot its heritage. And Edom forgot that they were brothers. And Edom mistreated their brothers. They acted towards them as godless people would act. If you like, they forgot that God had a say in what was going on in the world. They forgot what God had promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Those people who bless my people, I will bless. Those people who curse my people, I will curse. You treat my people well, and I'll treat you well. You don't treat my people well, and punishment will come upon you. And they forgot that. And the story as it goes through is, is this condemnation of them for turning away from God's pathway. So, for example, the next time we do it, we're going to look at the first nine verses and look about how they had such pride in their hearts. They had turned their back on God as the one who was their strength and they had strength in themselves. And how this led to them turning their back on God and being wicked towards other people. They had no regard for God. That's the first of the themes that comes through. The second of the themes comes out in the second half of the book. And that is that God is saying to Israel, my promises for you are true and I will take care of you. In other words, this, this book really wasn't written to Edom. Edom was supposed to get this message. We are being punished because of our attitude towards Israel. One of the reasons that I like it being an earlier timing, not a later timing, is that you have this idea that there is an opportunity for them to repent, just like Jonah to Nineveh gives them an opportunity to repent. Some of the words of Obadiah are repeated in the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah adds a little bit to them. And he says to the Edomites, he says, not only is this going to happen, but step back. Don't keep acting like you're acting. Save some of you. Turn your back on it. But the main reason is to write to Israel, because Israel is going through this terrible time of ransack and punishment and all that sort of stuff. And God says, I'm going to care for you. These people who are oppressing you, I will deal with them in my good time. And I will lift you up in my good time. And I will bless you in my good time. And all the promises that I have for you will come true. That's the main thing. That's the background of the book of Obadiah. And I hope it sets the scene as we move our way through it over another four weeks. But just from tonight, I have a few things I think we can take home with us. I actually have five things, short, minor things that we can take away with us. The lessons, if you like, general lessons that we can take away from us. The first of these is that we as Christian people, God followers, redeemed folk, need to be willing to submit to God's sovereign choices, God's promises, God's purposes, God's plans for our life. Esau didn't. There's nothing wrong with serving your younger brother, but his rebellion against it and his turning his back on God and not submitting to that purpose led down to a pathway of rebellion against God. I think of Cain, God's choice, God's election, God's purposes to Cain to say, I don't accept your offering, I accept Abel's offering. And Cain couldn't accept that. He couldn't change the way he was behaving. He couldn't do things differently. He couldn't respond and offer a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. 
submitting to God and his purposes and his plans and what he had in store for life. Instead, he rebelled against that. And envy and bitterness entered his heart and he rebelled against God and he rebelled and he killed his brother Abel. I think of Joseph. Joseph is given dreams to show that he will save his family. And his brothers, how do they respond to that? They don't say, thank you, Lord, that you've given us a younger brother who's going to save us. We're going to work with this. This is going to be fantastic. They treat their brother with contempt and they sell him off into slavery. You think, well, maybe that's not such a big deal. Those situations are not ones that we fall into. But then I think of Corinth. People who were looking at other people in the church and saying, I wish I was like them. I want what they've got. Or I'm better than they are. Not willing to accept the place, the gifts, the person that God had made them to be. They, they wanted something else. And I, I suggest that one of the things we learn from this so that we don't head down the pathway of Esau and Edom is to learn to submit to the place that God has put us. That doesn't mean that we can't seek in accordance with his plans and purposes and promises to achieve things within those boundaries. But learn, let's seek and after things that God hasn't given us. We're places where God hasn't put us. I talk to people sometimes and they say, you know, things would be much better if I wasn't in the family I was put in. Well, that's true for all of us sometimes. You know, if I'd had these opportunities, things would have been different. If this hadn't happened, if I'd bought my house at that time instead of this time, learn to, to live in the place where God has you according to his plans and purposes because his sovereign will is going to come about. He is directing the course of history in the small and the big. Learn to submit to what God's will is, his revealed will in the places where he puts us. This is the first thing we need to learn. Because if we don't learn that, we become jealous, we become envious, we become bitter, we have rivalry, we stop being family, we stop caring for others. The second lesson we have to learn is that we're responsible for our choices. God makes real choices and determines things. That's his sovereignty it's his election it's the truth of scripture those things happen esau served jacob joseph saved his brothers but we also make real choices our real choices change our lives and therefore we're responsible for the real choices that we make we can't put the blame on God and say, you've put me in this circumstance, it's your fault. We live within the circumstance where he's put us and we make real choices within there to live according to his plans and his purposes. And if we fail to do that, we have consequences back and forth. Now, we're redeemed people, so we're thankful for the fact that Christ saves us out of some of the consequences of the choices that we've made. He forgives us. But we have to be careful to constantly make responsible choices because they have real consequences. We can't turn our back our God and even the small things. For in God's sight, there is great consequences for a rejection of him and a turning our back on him. We need to remain focused in following him. That's the second thing. The third thing 
It's dangerous if we allow this bitterness to stay within our hearts. In the book of Hebrews, when the writer of the book is talking about this Esau situation in Hebrews chapter 12, he says this in verse 14, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And then as he's thinking about that, his mind gives an example of this. And he says this, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, what he wanted to inherit, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. It's something that we need to learn is to get rid of the bitterness that's within our hearts. You might say, well, I don't have bitterness towards people. Well, that's wonderful. Keep it that way. But as I talk to people, there are situations, there are things that come to our minds, and when the words are mentioned or the person is talked about, this feeling within us of anger begins to well. When we came back from the Sudan, we went to our home church and we began to talk about our experiences in the Sudan. We had this couple who had been in the Sudan and they came up to us and their faces were red and they just burst into tears. They hadn't been in the Sudan for 20 years. They had been living at home for 20 years. But just the mention of some of those circumstances brought tears to their eyes and anger within their hearts. There was such an a wound within them that they had allowed to stay there and to fester. This is what happened with Edom. Esau's rejection carried through to his descendants and their descendants and their descendants and it became a war of nations. One thing I think we can learn from that is, is never let that happen. If there are situations where when they're mentioned in front of you, You get tense. The anger comes up. You think about what that person has done towards you. Last year, I gave a talk on repentance at the youth group. And one of the things I said was there's one person I found really hard to forgive. Someone had done something to me. Someone who lives in New Zealand had done something to me. And every time this person's name came up, I got angry. He, he did the wrong thing, not me, right? Definite. He hurt me. He, he wounded me badly. I, I'm serious. That's the way I felt about it. I, I, and I said, you know, it's a really hard thing to forgive someone who's done that to you. Now, this is seven years later. I'm supposed to be an intelligent guy, right? I'm supposed to deal with this. Anyways, fortunately, the youth group, week after week, said, have you dealt with this yet? Have you said anything to him? Thanks, guys. Yeah. I had to write to him on, on Facebook a little while. He, he'd, on, over the years, he'd sent me a Facebook friending. Will you friend me? And I'd reject. <laughs> reject. Reject. 
I sent him a message. And I explained the way I felt. And I explained what had happened at youth group and how it was really hard for me, but we needed to deal with this. Get it off. Dealt with, out in the open. We've been communicating slowly. I mean, the messages go a month and about before we communicate, but they're, you know, they write a long time. But slowly working through some of the issues. Why? Because we can't allow the bitterness to dwell within us. You say to me, but you... <laughs> and, you know, you didn't understand what my parents have done. You didn't know what my kids were like. You know what that person at work behaved like. I have been mistreated in amazing ways. It's not my fault. I've been righteous in this. And this brings us to the fourth thing. We're called upon as Christian people to be different. We're not to respond in the way Esau did. We're to respond differently. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. God talking to his people Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 7 says this. Do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian, because you, are, because you resided as foreigners in their country. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. What's he saying? Don't respond the way everybody else does. Get rid of this attitude within you. Respond as redeemed people. If you find those situations just tear you up inside, deal with it. It's a sin if it still causes those reactions. You're holding on when you shouldn't. We are to be people who act with the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean that that healing doesn't take a long time to happen. Still now, when I get a message from this guy, my first response is a little temperature spike. And then I think, oh, that's wicked. That's not right. What's going on there? And again, I have to go through the process of saying, I'm supposed to be different. I've been forgiven by Christ for all my sins. He's wiped that out. How can I not forgive this guy who's done far less to me than I ever did to God? That's the way we're supposed to respond. That's the fourth thing, and I trust that we as as God's people will learn that. And it leads to the fifth thing. How do, we, how do we get through? How do we overcome? How do we actually deal with that? And I think what we need to understand is that God is sovereign. Back to the first thing. God's rule and his power are unlimited. And he says this in the book of Obadiah to these people. I will bring you out of that. I am in this whole process, molding you to be my people. We need to put our trust in a sovereign God who has a plan and he is working out his plans and purposes in our lives for our good and that he is sanctifying us, making us into the image of Christ. So if you're going through a difficult time in your life, in your circumstance, and you're struggling with that, know that God is sovereign. What he calls you to in that circumstance and in that situation is to put your faith and trust in him. Whatever the situation develops and comes out of that, as long as we have been submitting to his plan, to his purpose, to his revealed will, living as Christian folk, then trust him. 
He has never let anyone down. And he's not going to start doing it with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this prophet. I ask that as we study what he has to say today, and then in the next couple of months as we we touch on it, I pray that you might encourage us to not be like Esau, that we won't harbor things within our hearts against other people, even as communities against other communities. But instead, we will put our trust in you as a God who cares for us and loves us and wants to mold us and make us into the image of Jesus. Father, for those of us who have those hurts in our hearts where other people have wronged us and we hold on to and we're bitter towards them, Father, convict us of our sin. Cleanse us by your Spirit work as he applies the blood of Christ to us. Fashion us into people who are full of grace, compassion, mercy, and love towards even those who have wronged us. Father, help us to realize that every decision we make, every choice that we make in life has consequences. And therefore, Father, I pray that you might, again, by your Spirit, lead us into truth that we will know how to respond in circumstances in a way which brings you glory and honor that fulfills your purposes in us to be made into the image of Christ. And Father, if there are issues that need to be dealt with tonight amongst us, Father, I pray you'll deal with them. Father, give people the courage either to move aside for a period of time just to deal with what they need to deal with or to go and talk to someone if they need to talk something through. Father, begin your work of transforming us more and more into your people, even this evening. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.